Okay, well, the not so good news is that today's message is not going to be all that short. The good news is that we are still going to get out early. So, because it's like only 10.30. So maybe all those parts that I took out for the sake of time, I may find a way to put all those back in or something. All right, next Sunday, as I announced earlier, we have our congregational meeting. And in the past, I've used that Sunday and sometimes the one before it to address various matters relating to our church, kind of a thing we do at the beginning of the year, more or less. And as you know, I've covered a lot of different uh, subjects uh, about that through the years on those Sundays. And so for this year, I'd kind of like to set up uh, things with um, just revisiting a familiar passage in Ephesians 4. It's a passage that is packed with a lot of rich principles that deal with the unity and purpose of the church and how a church family is called to serve one another in love, this so that we can all grow and mature in the Lord together. And um, we've covered these sorts of things quite a bit in the past, but nonetheless, they need to be reinforced from time to time uh, for the benefit of not just our newer folks, but also for those who have been with us for many years. Now, regarding Ephesians 4, I would actually argue that this particular chapter should play a major role in the forming of one's philosophy of church. And everyone has a philosophy. Everyone has certain ideas and opinions about what a church is all about, what it should be doing, uh, how important it is to one's faith, its purpose, its priorities, and, and so on. And one's set of expectations is based on that philosophy. And one can learn a lot about a fellow believer's philosophy by a number of different ways. Like, for instance, comments made in normal conversations. When someone uh, asks you, where do you worship? Well, the fact that they frame the question that way can be quite telling uh, in a number of different ways. Another comment that you sometimes hear is, um, I got fed this morning. And you can read a lot from those words about how they understand what a purpose of a church is and what their role is in that. And whenever someone refers to their church with pronouns like they and them instead of we and us, well, again, that can tell us a lot, right? All right, so along with random comments, you can learn quite a bit about a person's philosophy of a church by what they do and don't do, like their history of attendance or how much or how little they volunteer and help out their financial contributions to the church, how they speak of it in conversations, you know, is the tone of that of complaining or being grateful, even how well they get along with others in the church, um, and so on. These sorts of things can all be quite revealing, and volunteer forms can be quite revealing as well. And not turning in those volunteer forms. <laughs> I won't mention names. <laughs> All right. The issue, of course, is whether one's philosophy, one's understanding of the church and its mission and purpose is based on principles taught in scriptures or based on ideas that we have gathered from other sources, like the way we were raised, which tends to be pure, pretty, pretty huge in this. So as I work through this passage in Ephesians 4, the objective is not to form a comprehensive philosophy about church. That's not even the intent of this passage. But again, the principles and concepts that Paul gets into here should make a, con it should make a major contribution to that, should have a lot of input into that. And the passage is ever so much relevant to us as it was to the original readers. So let's jump into it. And if you haven't already, let's turn to chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the believers at Ephesus. 
And if you didn't bring your Bible, that tells us a lot about your philosophy of, Bi of the Bible, doesn't it? <laughs> All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're going to work through the text itself. Next week we will deal more specifically with application. And there's, of course, no shortage of application that can be talked about here. All right, everyone found it? Brought it up on your phones or hard copies, whatever, Ephesians 4. <clears throat> the clue is Ephesians is in, is it in the Old Testament or New Testament? New, New Testament. So see this, by, this church is so, I mean, it's so biblically savvy. It's just, it's incredible. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So I'm, I think I'm using the 1984 NIV, but your version should be pretty similar. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. All right? Should be a familiar passage. So up to this point, in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of this letter, Paul has been spelling out the numerous blessings that God has lavished upon believers. The whole first half of the book is theology. Verse after verse, there are no, I mean, there, there are no exhortations, no challenges, in anything like that. And then, here at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul turns his attention to the application of that theology. And this is especially clear in those translations that begin verse 1 with the, with the word, therefore. It's a key word. In light of all these incredible truths, therefore, live a life worthy of them. And from here on into the rest of the letter, the mode will be far more exhortive. And so right away, then in verses 2 and 3, we have this pointed charge to be humble, gentle, patient, and willing to, be, and willing to put up with others, all of which are necessary to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this unity of the church serves as a major theme here in chapter 4 and continues to be a theme in the rest of the letter. We might be able to better appreciate Paul's points here once we take into account the historical setting. So as you may remember, it involves this potentially contentious situation that Paul addressed in the previous chapters. We have in the same church people who belong to two groups 
that have a long history of being quite antagonistic with each other, even hostile. Hostile politically, socially, economically, and religiously. And this, of course, would be who? Jews and Gentiles. And having been converted to Christ, these new believers are now one, one in him. And Paul says in chapter 2 that they are now a new humanity, a new race, a new society. And this, of course, is what the church is. It is a new creation in which believers are reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. They are bound by Christ and bound to Christ and therefore bound to each other. Though that is the occasion that prompted Paul's words here, the wider application, of course, extends to believers everywhere. The church here in Ephesus was, you might say, the test case. If those believers in particular could love and forgive and show grace to one another, then anyone could. So as we move on to verses 4 and 5, we see that Paul explains the basis of this unity that we are to have in the Spirit. The reason every Christian is to demonstrate humbleness, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love toward other believers is because there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. It is not our conservative values. It is not our right-wing politics. It is not our objections to government overreach or any of that other stuff. In the church, our unity is that we share a common Savior. All that you treasure and hold to as significant, you know, your salvation, your relationship to God, uh, this promise of a future glory, all the core truths that form the bedrock of your convictions and inform your worldview and so on, are now things that you hold dear with others. The emphasis on one in Paul's list here, seven times in one sentence, speaks to our togetherness. Believers share together the same faith, Lord, hope, body, baptism, spirit, and heavenly father. And because there is one heavenly father who unites us, we are bound together both objectively and subjectively. And the deeper the appreciation we have for these core truths that we cherish there in verses 4 through 6, the deeper the bond we will have or should have for those who equally share them with us. Does that make sense? Because we cherish them together. And this concept then is, a, is really a direct assault upon this individualistic and independent spirit that is so prevalent in American Christianity. Such attitudes, which are often found in the church, work against what God has specifically designed. And it can sometimes be a problem here. And we'll talk more about that next week. Now, in the next section, verses 7 through 16, we see that the focus shifts a little bit. Paul turns from all of us to each of us. Unity in Christ is still, is still the subject, but he now approaches it from the angle of diversity. The fact that in our unity, we are nonetheless a different. And these differences actually contribute to God's purpose for the church, including its unity. And so what we see here is that God works on two levels, the church as a whole and also in the individuals. So note again, verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. Although there is only one Lord, one faith, one body, this unity is not to be thought of as 
conformity. Oneness in Christ does not mean sameness. Quite the contrary, the life of the church body, far from being boringly monotonous, is, as designed by God, to be quite rich and exciting in its variation and differences, all of which actually contribute to and enhances both our own personal walk with Christ and the work and mission of our church family. And this because grace has been given to each one of us. All right? So the key word that Paul uses here, and one that requires a little explanation, is, of course, uh, the word grace. So let's just take a minute here to look at that as it's used in this context. The word, as you know, has all sorts of applications throughout the New Testament, basically refers to God's divine enablement. Out of his kindness and goodness, he helps us in our, in our need. And one Bible commentator refers to it as God giving himself to us. So that's a good way to kind of frame that. Here in verse 7, the word is used to refer to God's gifts to the church, namely divinely enabled members who are serving in their various places of service. This so that all of the members individually, as the church as a whole, so that all the members individually and as a church as a whole might grow and mature and attain the fullness of Christ. So think of this as growing in holiness and growing in that holiness together. And these divinely enabled members are not the paid staff, but everyone, to each one, grace has been given. So the thought here is pretty simple. It's basically this. Within the unity of the body, each member has a distinct service to render. This for the edification of the whole. The ability to perform this service is due to the grace given to each one by Christ who administers this from his throne in heaven. We find this concept addressed in more detail in passages like 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4 and others. And we often hear this spoken of as a person's spiritual gift, but it might be more helpful to think of it as, as each person's function or role or ministry or better yet, place of service. These ministries are as different as the people who make up the church. So there's not just a list of five or seven or 12, and you have to find the one that matches you. You know, take one of those spiritual gifts tests that used to be so popular. Rather, in a church of a couple hundred people, we could easily expect to find, well, a couple hundred different gifts of grace. Many would be similar, but yet each unique to the individual member. And you might say that Christ, in his apportioning of them, has done so in a way that tailor fits each person and for the church family that they are a part of. And as to be expected, some of these gifts of grace, these ministries, are more out front and visible, while others are carried out from behind the scenes and may not always be noticed. But as we see a few verses down, all of them are essential for the life, health, and growth of the church. It is God's purpose as we see in verse 16, that the church builds itself up in love as each part fulfills its role. Underline those words, as each part fulfills its role. And this means that no one is more important and no one is less. It also means that there's no such thing as an inactive member of Christ's body. Whether you are a hand, a leg, a lung, or a little toe, everyone has been apportioned from God a, a place to serve. And the health and growth of the church depends on everyone faithfully and diligently functioning in that grace that they have been given. And this is, this is basically what we call around here, around here, 
every member ministry. This word should be familiar. This is what a church is. Everyone has their oar in the water. This serving each other in love with the grace that God has given to each of us binds us together as a united church family. Everyone got that? Sound, should sound familiar. And it needs to be said that oftentimes when it comes to serving, we may not feel all that divinely enabled, okay? It's not the sort of thing where you've got a song in your heart, you're glowing with love, grace is springing out of you like a fresh water fountain as you feel this surge of divine joy and energy rushing through your bones. I wish it were that way. Maybe it is for everybody, but it's not for me, <laughs> right? God enables us whether we feel it or not. Very important. Our task is to yield to him even if it involves struggle and sacrifice, which it often does. The point is, this conviction that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, is proven and demonstrated by our unity and our faithful ministry to each other. And this is part of God's incredible plan to help us grow and mature. He blesses each of us so that we will bless others with the grace that we have been blessed with. So all those, I mean, all those churchless Christians out there, and we all know some, don't we? I mean, they're really missing out on this. How can it be just me and Jesus when Jesus himself established a community of faith, a church that we are to relate to and to be in fellowship with? As we will see in the verses that follow, God has designed a way for us to grow and mature and become like him, and that way involves being active in a local body. And that involvement means more than just mere attendance. Indeed, you can attend church, even be a member, and still be a churchless Christian. And we'll talk more about that next week as well. All right, we now come to verse 8, which, as you look at it there, at first it just seems to be really out of place. Verse 8. This is why it says, so we know that it's not out of place because of those words. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. So as your footnote shows, Paul here is pulling this from Psalm 68. This psalm is about a great celebration, honoring God for his triumph in a great battle. Verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So what do these three verses have to do with Christ enabling members for ministry in their local church? What is going on here? Well, Paul is simply offering a behind-the-scenes look or explanation, if you will. Uh, verse 8 is the most significant. 9 and 10 are more or less parenthetical. These Divinely enabled ministries that serve as blessings to the church body are given because of something that actually occurred in space and time, and that would be Christ's ascension, which in this context, Paul is probably referring to the whole exaltation event, Christ's resurrection from the dead, 40 days later, his ascension into heaven, and once in heaven, the glorification of being crowned Lord of all as he took his place at the right hand of the Father. Whatever the case, the fact that he ascended on high has momentous significance. Paul makes a direct connection between it and Christ divinely, divinely enabling Christians for ministry, which is actually quite fascinating. And the point here can't be overstated. Our divinely enabled ministries, um, based on this, are not to be taken lightly. 
They are, as scripture here shows, the result of Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil. They are the reward, the victor's prize, the spoils of the battle, and they did not come cheap. And those who receive them should honor them accordingly and honor them and others as well. These gifts, as the word is used here, appear to have a double meaning as we look at this. Gifts of grace are given to individuals, and these individuals then, because of this, become gifts of grace to others. That people are, that people are recipients of God's grace makes them gifts to the church. Follow that? Countless examples could be given, but suffice it to say that you are God's gift to your church family, and they are God's gifts to you. We are each God's gift to each other, and all this is because of what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection. It is all his doing, not ours, and this is a very important point, for if what we receive from if for if what we received comes from Christ and not from ourselves, then it will, at least hopefully, change our attitude about our own service in the church and also our appreciation about the service of others. So with that in mind, let's now move on to the parenthetical statement there in verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> there has been some discussion over the years on what exactly Paul is referring to when he speaks about Christ descending to the lower earthly regions. So without taking time to explore all the various theories and positions, it might be best to simply think of it as all that was involved in what is commonly called Christ's humiliation, which includes the incarnation, growing up in a poor family under the heavy hand of Rome, the rejection that he suffered through his life and ministry, especially from his own people, even members of his family, it would involve the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, the humiliation, agony of the mockings and beatings, and finally the crucifixion itself, executed as a lowly, disgusting criminal cursed of God. His whole life, living among us in a fallen world, was a descending into the uttermost depths. And so what Paul has in mind here is descent and ascent in terms of humiliation and exaltation, from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs, from one extreme of suffering, defeat, and humiliation, and shame, and weakness, and dishonor, to the other extreme of being exalted to the highest place that heaven affords, ascending higher than all the heavens, it says. That said, the actual point that Paul is pressing here is not so much what Christ descended to, but the fact that he ascended from it, and did so, as verse 10 states so clearly, in order to fill the whole universe. See that there in your Bible? which is another way of saying that Christ is creation's king and victor, and his sovereignty extends to every square inch of it. Thus, he can now bestow upon the church he rules and loves both the spirit to indwell it and the gifts and graces and ministries of the spirit to edify it and bring it to maturity. As its king and victor, he, quote, gives gifts to men and women, right, so, there is a particular picture that comes to mind here, one that I've used in the past, so let me try to paint it again the best that I can, and the imagery to some degree is loosely based on Psalm 68 that Paul is quoting from. So I want you to imagine a victorious king ascending in triumphant procession to his royal palace on the top of a great hill, 
and he's accompanied by a large entourage of high-ranking officials and servants. And this king just er days earlier had been jailed by the enemy, subdued, beaten, overcome, and defeated. Yet in such weakness, he nonetheless overcomes his captor, dethrones him, and takes possession of his army. The conquered becomes the conqueror. And now in celebration, his supporters and citizens line up on both sides of this long route, thousands and thousands of them for miles and miles, cheering and applauding and showering him with praise. It is such a magnificent occasion. The king is so overwhelmed with joy and love for his people that as he passes by them, he freely and generously showers upon the, all the spoils of the battle, all the riches and rewards he had received as the victor. And he calls on his servants, and they dig into the treasure chest, and they, without restraint, lavish upon all who are celebrating the king's victory unspeakable blessings for their benefit and enjoyment. I mean, what a joyous occasion. Can you picture this? But there's more. They, in turn, the recipients, in the joy of the moment, bless each other with the gifts they have been blessed with. Everyone is blessing each other with the blessings they have received from the king. That, I would suggest, is the picture of what is going on here in Ephesians 4, in Ephesians 4 that Paul derives from Psalm 68. <clears throat> Jesus, the victor, has ascended to the highest place, the highest place of supremacy, period. Higher than all the heavens, his power is supreme, his authority is unmatched, his throne is everlasting, he fills the universe. He fills the universe by the fact that nothing escapes the exercise of his mighty rule. And now, because of his supremacy, he sets out to supply his people, his chosen, cherished people, with everything necessary to foster the growth and perfection of his kingdom, this new humanity, the church. He apportions out grace, grace to every single one. He divinely enables them, us, to man our posts and fulfill our assignments. And this we do until, verse 13, we are transformed into the likeness of Christ himself. Pursuing holiness and pursuing it together. Every member faithfully contributing to the mutual task of, from verse 16, building ourselves up in love. All for the glory of God the Father. Now, unfortunately, to speak frankly about this, many times our attitudes tends to be pretty backwards in all of this. Some, by their own choosing, do not have a place of service and do not want one. Others see it as uh, the whole thing as a burden instead of the gift from God that it really is. Others want to choke it with conditions. Well, I'll serve in this or that, but only if this and that. Conditions that really, when you look at them, are grounded more in pride and laziness and selfishness than anything that's actually legitimate. And much of the time there is this, when there is service, an attitude of, I'm doing everyone a favor, rather than seeing the opportunity itself as a favor being extended from the Lord to the person. So we just tend to have this whole thing upside down in our approach. Lay aside for the moment the argument appealing to obligation, that's a whole sermon, but the point being made here in Ephesians 4 is that God has blessed us, enabled us by his Holy Spirit to share in the ministry of helping others and the church as a whole to grow and mature. It is something that is to be cherished and treasured. 
something to appreciate and be grateful for. It is not to be viewed as a burden, and since it is a gift, <clears throat> it isn't something that we, are, that we have a right to regulate and control and withhold due to matters of our own pettiness. All right, moving on to verses 11 and 13. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So this passage is there, of course, very rich. Here we see that Paul gives us a sample of what some of these gifts of grace, these divinely enabled ministries look like and how they are to be used to bless the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. So a couple of comments before we take a cl closer look at those. First, we need to remember that, again, they serve as examples. The whole thrust of this section is that grace has been given to each one of us, verse 7, and that the body builds itself up in love by the faithful service of each member, verse 16. These particular ministries are mentioned because they deal with the formal offices or functions of a local church or of a church. Secondly, and along this line, though um, these particular ministries are identified by certain names or titles, and many in the New Testament are, we should not assume that every divine-enabled ministry is. As mentioned earlier, there are perhaps as many of these gifts of grace as there are people in the church. Certainly, there will be similarities and overlap, but each is unique to the individual believer. And so we can miss the point if we try to box them all into neat little categories, give them all names, and force everyone to fit inside one or the other. That said, let's take a quick look at the ones that Paul does name. Apostles. The word apostle has a broad application in the New Testament. In the, um, it's often, of course, used of the 12. Here we might think capital A. A few times it's used of others apart from the 12, church planters and missionaries, lowercase a. Um, basically, these would be people who were foundational in the task of establishing the early churches. The word prophets likewise carries a wide range of usage in the New Testament. It generally refers to certain believers who had a divinely enabled ability to speak on behalf of God. Some predicted future events, but not all. The main thing is that they proclaimed God's truth. Evangelists focus primarily on spreading the gospel, missionaries, itinerant preachers traveling from region to region, and those who gave themselves to reaching the lost in their own hometowns. And finally, pastors and teachers. And there's some discussion whether this refers to two different ministries or one. We'll save that for another time. Um, we might also remember that the role of pastors described in the New Testament seems to be synonymous with the role of the elder. Whatever the case, it appears that Paul has in mind those who were primar primarily responsible for leading, teaching, and managing a local church. So in the verses that follow, Paul goes on to explain that these particular ministries have been given by God so as to equip and train believers for works of service, discipleship, so that this, so that, one, the church will grow and mature, conformed in the image of Christ, sanctification, and Two, that believers will be properly grounded in truth and not deceived, led away by false teachings. Perseverance. So discipleship, sanctification, perseverance. It's all there. So what we have here then is actually a, a kind of a, a, a line of progression, a, a sort of momentum going on. 
we begin with Christ himself as the foundation of the church. Upon Christ, we have the work and teaching of the first century apostles and prophets. Indeed, many of their teachings are preserved for us in the writings of the New Testament. Then upon the work of the apostles and prophets, namely uh, the gospel itself is being formed, uh, as it's being formed and codified, the evangelists take that, the good news, and reach out to the lost, resulting in converts. And once converted, believers are taught and trained by the ministry of the church under the oversight of the pastors, elders, and other teachers. The picture that, the picture that um, this is one gift of Christ contributing to that of another, of one ministry building on another, all for equipping the saints for works of service. They are the ministries that God uses to build all the other ministries. They function more or less the official or formal or structured capacity in the church. And as we see from the verses that follow, especially verse 16, the progression doesn't stop there. Again, there is this momentum. It goes from the formal and official and structured to the informal and natural and relational so that there's mutual edification, mutual discipleship, mutual teaching and exhortation and accountability and encouragement of all the members, everyone contributing to the building up of each other and the whole body in love, all of which is heading toward a grand objective, a grand goal, a final magnificent goal here, which is stated in verse 13, reaching unity in the faith, growing in the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, and attaining to the whole measure of Christ's fullness. See how that plays out in those scriptures there? As someone once put it, the Reformation does, you know, recover the grand doctrine and practice of the priesthood of all believers, that every Christian can enjoy through Christ a direct access to God. What we need now is to recover the doctrine and practice of the ministry of all believers. I thought that was well said. So think again of all those one another verses in the New Testament. Teach one another, counsel one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, admonish one another, and so on. So this brings us now to verses 14 and 15. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. So one of the purposes of attaining maturity in Christ, which is on the forefront of Paul's thinking in this section, is stability the ability to stand firm and not be swept away by false teachings. And to illustrate the dangers of this, Paul gives us the picture of a boat without a rudder or anchor, tossed to and fro from here to there at the mercy of the waves, whirled about by every fresh gust of wind. And they are easily spun about by every, you know, such believers are easily spun about by every new theological idea or fad taken up with the latest trend or the best-selling book. And they simply go wherever the wind is blowing the strongest at the time. And this is yet another reason why everyone should be properly related to a church family and one that is theologically grounded. We need the stability of fellow brothers and sisters who are well-established. Whether we admit it or not, each of us are quite vulnerable when we distance ourselves from the church family because isolation leaves us without protection. And for those who think that they are you know, so mature that they would never be taken by deception, well, that itself shows that they have already been deceived. The word cunning that, he, that Paul uses here in verse 14 is an interesting word. It refers to the throwing of dice and actually became a figure of speech for, slight, for sleight-of-hand trickery. 
The idea is similar, similar to that of a card trick. The dice or cards are controlled, manipulated in a way that serves the advantage of the one who is handling them. Due to this cunning and craftiness, this clever manipulation of the truth, immature and unstable believers are swayed, deceived, and led astray. But again, as the passage here teaches, being established and active in a theologically grounded church body will afford them a great deal of protection, mutual edification, and mutual accountability. We, we, you know, we help each other in the straight and narrow, not just morally, but also theologically. Thus the words in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Notice that the directive here is given to everyone. I mean, that's a major point that can be overlooked. Speaking the truth in love, those words are a little difficult to translate into English, but it's kind of interesting here. In the original language, there is no reference to that of speaking. Speaking is implied, so that's why the translators insert that word. But if we were to take it literally, it would simply say, truthing in love. And perhaps then what Paul had in mind here is that truth is something more than what one says, but is also something that one does, something that one lives. And in this context, then, it would involve both our compassionate and sincere exhortations, our loving admonishments to each other, and also the examples we set by our lifestyles. I mean, for instance, as one example, I can give a sermon on how to love and serve others like this one, but many of you will be more motivated to put this into action by observing the examples of others. And we have many here who seduce serve as examples. Whatever the case, by words or example or both, we are to help each other, quote, grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. And again, this truthing in love is something we all share in. It is part of our ministry to each other. Okay, finally, verse 16. <clears throat> From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as the staff does its part. Right? As the pay, oh, I forgot the word paid. As the, past, as the paid staff does its work. You guys are, is anybody awake? Come on, you all should be yelling at me right now. That's not what it says. Come on, I need to hear some grumbling. Let's get some grumbling going on here. I want some complaints, protests, pickets, something here. Riots in the streets. Grows and builds itself up in love as... Each part does its work. Paul doesn't really here introduce anything all that is new. Um, he basically brings together several prominent ideas from the paragraphs above. Unity and diversity in the body, spiritual growth and maturity, and of course, mutual edification. Every member ministry. And though it is a summary statement, much could be said about it, and um, we'll comment more on it next Sunday. And as we will see, Paul further develops the picture of the human body is illustrating the growth of the church. And the fact that we, very important, that we mature and grow together as a unit. We grow and mature together as a unit. In fact, we each have a responsibility to mature and grow individually, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. The more mature, helping the less mature. So more on this next time. Let's go ahead and stand, and I'll close from this, um, from Paul's words to the Romans as he's kind of winding down his letter toward the end of chapter 15. 
May God, who gives patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Jesus Christ. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus. Upon those words, you are dismissed. Go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love. Amen.